Right. So last week we started our our series through the book of Ephesians, and uh, we started uh, um, by by basically not really even looking at Ephesians except for talking about uh, the main theme, the major theme and purpose behind um, Ephesians, and and that is to reorient or center the identity of the believers, um, those who are in Ephesus, and also. Uh, those who are here this morning, uh, to reorient, re- excuse me, reorient our identity on Christ and in Christ, because that's what we see flowing through um, the, the book of Ephesians. So we started off talking about this identity crisis, this identity crisis that, um, that exists, and not only in our culture, we see it all over the place, uh, but the identity crisis that is in, in each of us, the, the places that we, we look toward, the places that we go after to, to attempt to find that self-worth, that self-identity, um, the things that we want to uh, I- identify in. We talked about how we are the image, we are image-bearer worshipers, meaning, meaning God has given us uh, the image of God. We, we have placed upon us God's image, and therefore what we are created to do was to image, reflect who God is. And so when we reflect who God is, we, are, we're, we call that worshiping. And that means we have been created to worship. We're created to find our, our self-worth and identity in the one in whom we are reflecting, and that is God. And what we have discovered and what we have seen, that ever since Genesis chapter 3, ever since Genesis chapter 3 in the fall of man, the image-bearing worshipers of of mankind is distorted. It is by nature sin, fallen, dis- distorted in a sense that, that, that we do not by natural man worship God, but we sense want to worship ourselves as we want to become God. And therefore what we do is we find uh, things in this life that we identify in outside of God that we try to find that worth in feeding that, that, uh, that image worship of ourself, whether that would be our jobs, whether that would be success in life or in jobs, uh, whether it be our family, that uh, um, this is something that we should hear as well, that our family can become idols to us, our children can become idols to us. Um, uh, by the way, I, Matt Chandler says this, that children make terrible gods. Terrible gods. Um, we we are uh, family can do can be all these things are great things, right? Relationships, jobs, all these things are good. Sports, all these things can are good things and can be good things in our life, but yet in of themselves they make terrible, terrible gods, and they do not satisfy. So therefore, why should we find any kind of identity within them? And so our idolatry looks like in, in, in a couple different places, whether it be items, materialism. We talked about that last week. Uh, we talked about duties, doing things, being religious or, 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 or just being something, right? These duties that become idols to us, whether it might be others, uh, it might be the longings that we have in, in this life. These things can become idols to us. Even suffering can, can become an idol to us. Even suffering can become an, an idol to us. And in the end, and what we talked about last, last week, especially toward the end, is that these idols will be exposed. These idols will, will all be exposed because they cannot bear the weight 
They cannot bear the weight by which we place upon them. They weren't created to be the very thing that you find your identity in. If, if, I'm, trying to, if I'm trying to find my self-worth as a husband to my wife, my wife cannot bear that weight. And if she's trying to find her self-worth as a wife or find her self-worth in me, I can't bear that weight. There will be turmoil and hurt all the time. So where are we finding our worth and our identity? And, and this is what Ephesians points out to us. It points out to us time and time again to put our hope and to put our identity in Christ alone. In, in Christ alone. One of the things that I, I didn't get to last week in, in, in talking about Ephesians uh, is that 12 times the Apostle Paul, 12 times the Apostle Paul uses the phrase in Christ. In Christ. Eight times he, he says in Him. Right? Meaning in Christ. Five times does he say in the Lord. And one time, one time he says, in the beloved, into Christ he uses one time, in Jesus he uses one time, in the Lord Jesus he uses one time. So he uses time and time after again in the book of Ephesians that where our identity lies is in Christ, is in Christ. And, and this is what we're going to continue to unpack. So, so last week we started out with that premise, right? This is where our, our, our identity is to lie, is, is to be in, in, in Christ. Now, how does Paul then accomplish that? How does then Paul then try to uh, teach the church in Ephesus and also through the, through the work of the Holy Spirit? Now, his, this great writing is for us, God's Word for us. How does it now teach us and show us how to find our identity in Him. If our new great identity is to be in the Son of God and we're to put away these idols, where now are we supposed to look? How do we do this? How do we accomplish that? And that's what Ephesians helps us see. If, if you were able to take some time this week and, and read through Ephesians, and I hope you did, and I encourage you to continue to do that. Read a chapter a day or read the whole thing a day. It'll only take you about maybe 20, 25, maybe 30 minutes to read the whole thing if you could sit down and, and, and do it. And if you had time to read and meditate through Ephesians this week, you, you might have caught a glimpse of what's happening in the text and, and what's really going on in, in, in Ephesians. And what we see in Ephesians that's just amazing to me is that the perspective of salvation, right? The whole perspective of salvation is, is one that is completely different than any of us would want to go to first. Meaning this, what he does is, is he gives us a perspective of salvation through the lenses of God himself. He gives us a, a perspective of salvation through the lenses of God himself. And so therefore, the, the language that he uses, and if you read it, you kind of caught some of this. The language that he uses and the descriptions that he, that he uses are so big and are so grand that if you read it closely, you can kind of see that Paul can't even find the right words to describe it. He can't even, he can't even get there. Words can't hold up 
to what he is feeling and thinking and how the Spirit is moving in him. Words can't hold up. There is an inadequacy of words by the Apostle Paul to describe this perspective and what it does at the end of chapter 1 and also at the end of chapter 3 is it brings the Apostle Paul to his perspective of just worship. He just goes out into to worship like he can't handle anymore. It just bubbles up in worship and praise and thanksgiving to God. He cannot contain the overwhelming joy of the greatness of God. And that this greatness of God that is revealed as God has worked out salvation from eternity's past, he sees completely, completely flowing through the Son, Jesus Christ. That's why last week when we said, when I gave the quote about, from Martin Lloyd-Jones, is that he says this is about Ephesians, that, there's, that is why there is nothing more sublime, nothing more grand, nothing greater, nothing more amazing in the whole of Scripture than the epistle of, uh, of, of Ephesians. Nothing more grand, because he, he, he shows such an amazing picture of God and God acting and bringing about salvation. So this morning, we're going to encounter Ephesians 1.1. We're going we're to start that in Ephesians 1.1 today, and we're not even going to finish the first verse. <laughs> Because I have, a, I have a goal in, in, in the picture I want to, to paint before we uh, really dive in deep into the, into the text. Ephesians 1.1, 1, 1, read it with me. Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus by the will of God, to the saints who are in Ephesus and are faithful in Christ Jesus. Now, this, this is uh, the, the, the way that Paul greets the, the church here in Ephesus in his writing is, is very similar to, to many of the other greetings that we see in the rest of, of, of Paul's um, writing. But yet what we see in this is very unique in the sense that there's a, there's a humility before the church. And yet this humility is spoken with great authority. This humility is spoken with, with, with a great authority. And what it does for us this morning, as Paul is speaking with this humility and also with this great authority, we can this morning be assured that what we are reading and what we are studying and what we are hearing is the Word of God and that we can have no doubt that this is God's revelation to us. That Paul, the Apostle of God, of Christ Jesus by the will of God, this is God's Word. And we can affirm that completely here this morning. Now, the reason why I want us to stop right here in verse 1, in fact, we're not even, get, we're, next week we'll get to, the, to the, when he says, to the saints who are in Ephesus. We'll talk about that next week. I just want to really deal with the first phrase today. And the reason why I want to do that is, is uh, think with me here, is that if you go up and you look at a, a piece of stained glass, I don't know if you've ever uh, uh, seen really nice stained glass. Um, what's that, that really crazy, ornate Catholic church in Savannah? Uh, St. John the Baptist, right? Uh, if, you, if you go there, the stained glass there is just unbelievable. Um, and if, if you go up to a piece of stained glass and, and you don't even look at the whole thing, but you go, I mean, you just kind of stick your face up to that stained glass. You don't look at the picture. You just look at that. And all you see is, is going to be what? Jagged pieces of, of, of glass that, that have been melded together um, to, uh, and, and you just won't know what it is, whether it's blue, red, green, whatever, it, whatever color it is. It won't necessarily make sense. They'll just be jagged pieces of glass that are put together. 
And as different as each maybe piece of glass looks and how they've been put together and how interesting and ornate and crazy how they were able to put all those things together, you'll never see the real whole picture, will you, until you do what? Until you step back. Until you step back and you take a, take a look at the whole piece. And then you can start to figure out why those little pieces have been put together in the way that they have so uniquely and intricately was to produce and make such a great picture. Or, or a piece of art, whatever, whatever it may be. So you'll miss the whole point if you don't step back and look at it. And, and that's what we're going to do today. Is we're going we're to take a step back and we're going to look at the book of Ephesians as Paul has addressed Paul, the Apostle of Christ Jesus, by the will of God. We're going to step back and unpack some things, some more themes that we see flowing through Ephesians that will put meat on what it means to have our identity in Christ. So as we look and read Ephesians, we want to see the, the whole picture. We don't, want to, we don't want to miss the grandeur and the whole thing. It's like a, the, the statement or the saying that people say, you don't... Um, don't miss the forest amongst the trees or something like that. Um, you, you'll miss the whole forest if all you're doing is staring at the individual trees. You'll miss the grandeur of the whole book. And that's what we want, to, we want to do first. And so the Bible, we're going way back here, right? The Bible is written first and foremost about God. It is written first and foremost about God. Meaning it is, it is not a book about you. It's, it's not a book about... Um, you know, how to make your life right, how to, how to have the, the correct recipes of life, and, and if you live this certain way, then, then you'll have a successful life. The Bible is not written for that. It is not intended to be such things. It is written, first and foremost, about God. And this is where Ephesians starts. And this is where we must start. It says there, by the will of God, by the will of God. Not Paul's will, not man's will, but by the will of God. This is, that is one of the most greatest problems with the church today. Is that we want to start with man. We want to start with, with, with us. We want to start with ourselves. What can I get out of it? What's in it for me? And then what we do is we end up manipulating the whole meeting and the point of, of, of Scripture to feed this egocentric self. We grumble and we complain and we're, we're miserable all because we have forgotten God. And we placed ourselves as the one who's above all, making God and His Word our servant. And yet the whole message of the Bible is given to us, it's given to you, and it's given to me, each person here this morning, hear this, that the Bible is given to us to bring man back to God. To bring man back to God. To humble you before the Lord and to show our real relationship to God and what it actually is. This is what Ephesians does and this is what it will do for us. The way that we find our identity in Christ is first and foremost to forget about yourself and to look to God. To forget the good and the bad of your life and to look to Him. In time, listen, He will deal with all things in your life. In time, He will deal with all of those things. 
But now let us be ushered into the glorious throne of God and may we marvel at His splendor and at His holiness. For this is what Paul does for us. So this morning I want to make six points. Six short points, right? Y'all know me. Six short, short points out of that one little part of the verse that I think is a recurring theme throughout the book of Ephesians or throughout this epistle that will help set the solid foundation of what it actually means to put our identity in Christ and what it means. First one is this, is the greatness of God. The first one is the greatness of God. When I say the greatness, the greatness of God, I don't want that to get lost in, in words with no meanings, meaning, so I'm going to define that for you. So when I speak of the God's greatness, I mean two main attributes And we talked about these on Wednesday night, and that is God's transcendence and God's imminence. God's transcendence means that it is God himself, apart from the created order, having independent existence apart from everything. Think about that. The transcendence of God, that he is above all things, and he is independent from all existence. Meaning that he is completely self-sufficient. He is in need of nothing. He is, in need, he is not in need of your worship. He does not need your approval. He doesn't need you liking him on Facebook. In fact, I'm pretty sure God doesn't have a profile on Facebook. That may be his. He doesn't need those things. He's completely self-sufficient in everything. And he is transcendent above all things. He is subject to no one. He has no counsel on this earth that he must listen to and abide by. God is great in his transcendence. And so when I speak of the greatness of God, I don't speak mainly upon the things that God can do, for God can do great things. But I speak of God's transcendence, meaning God is high above everything. And then a part of his greatness, which is amazing, because if we just left God as being transcendent, which is absolutely revealed in Scripture, that's a very terrifying God. We, we all should be terrified in the hands of this God. But God is also in his imminence, referring to that he is also close to us. And he gives mercy and love and kindness and grace to whom he wills. God is transcendent, and yet God is as well imminent. And what we see in Ephesians is the greatness of God on display in Ephesians. Two passages, just for example, show the, the, the transcendence of God and the imminence of God in His, in His greatness, and that captivates us. Starting in verses, uh, um, verse, or chapter 1, verses 3 through 14. You can just kind of follow with me. I won't read them, but I'll just kind of go through each verse, and you can just kind of read it real quick and follow along. If you look at verse 3, look, look at verse 3. That who he blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. He blessed us with every spiritual blessing in the heavenly places. Verse 4. He chose us. That's transcendent. Verse 5, in love, in love, He predestined us for adoptions as sons and daughters. And when, when, I, say, when I say love, I, I want to give you an idea of what that means. That, that it wasn't because you have something awesome about yourself 
that God just said, there's something really lovable about Lydia, right? She's, she's very cute, so it's easy to love Lydia. That one right there. Right? She's very cute, so we're just going to love her. But God's love is not based upon what we give or any kind of merit that is in of ourselves, or we bring no merit, but it is a love that is unconditional, meaning it's not based upon you, but it's based upon Him. I, I gave the words in love in verse 5, and if you notice that, it's actually part of verse 4. I think that's a mistake of the translators, by the way. Uh, maybe not translators, but whoever the guy was in like 1186 who put the numbers on the verses was not very smart in taking in love and putting it in verse 5. It doesn't make sense. But verse 5, it makes sense that in love he predestined us for adoptions and sons and daughters. I, I'm, I can't wait to unpack that for you guys when we get there uh, in July. That was a joke. Hey, you know how we roll. Verse 7. In him we have what? Redemption. And the what? And the forgiveness of our sins. God's greatness. Only God can accomplish such things. Verse 11. We have obtained an inheritance which was predestined according to whose purposes? According to whose purposes? His purposes. Not yours, but to God's purposes. In verse 13, we then are sealed with the promise of the Holy Spirit as the guarantee of that inheritance. Continuing in chapter 1, uh, uh, verse 19, or 17 through, uh, uh, through, through 19, just continues just amazing things of who God is and how He has shown His greatness to us and how... Paul is expanding and now he's kind of in this prayer. Let's read it together. That the God of our Lord Jesus Christ, the Father of glory, may give you the spirit of wisdom and of revelation in the knowledge of Him. Right there we can stop. The greatness of God in giving us the revelation and the knowledge of Him. He's given us His Word. That we can understand and know God. Verse 18, the prayer is, Having the eyes of your hearts enlightened, that you may know what is the hope. What is the hope to which He has called you? What are the riches? The riches of His glorious inheritance to the saints. And look at verse 19, And what is the immeasurable i got a tape measure in my back. I can measure things. This is immeasurable. You can't comprehend it. There's not, a, there's not a number that can comprehend this. That's why we have that goofy sideways eight for infinity. It can't be comprehended. It's immeasurable. And what is immeasurable? His greatness. His greatness. And look what it says. His greatness of what? His power toward toward us who believe according to the work of His great might. Greatness. Greatness on display in Ephesians for us to uh, glorify God in. So here we go, right here. If we, want to, if, if, if we want to find our identity in Christ, then look toward the greatness of God. 
Look toward the greatness of God. Meditate upon His transcendence. And then meditate and wonder and marvel at His eminence and love and mercy toward you. And yet here we are as man. We still desperately want to cling to to the very bitter end. We want to cling to the the very bitter end to our own greatness and, and to our own abilities and to our own talents. Now, now, I want to say that, that I don't want to deny that in the human race there is greatness. Like, there is some great talent in this, in this world. And there's some great creativity in this world. And all of those things should be enjoyed and even celebrated. But all greatness is greatness that is derived from the greatness of God. That everything in this world that is great is all derived greatness from God's greatness. Everything that is awesome in this world, we should marvel at God. And when we let that, that greatness kind of just end on us, when you let it end on you, and you let it terminate on you, you are robbing glory from God. You are robbing glory from God. So when will we realize that real freedom, that real freedom is finding our identity not on your own greatness, but in the greatness of God? That's point number one, the greatness of God. Number two, the sovereignty of God. Number two, the sovereignty of God. Do not be afraid of these terms. Do not be afraid of these words. Transcendence, imminence, greatness, sovereignty. Do not be afraid of these terms. For these, for these words, they, they run through Scripture. They're, they're throughout Scripture. And these, and these words are, are such great doctrine, such rich theology. Those who have studied, studied theology, these were, the, these were the words that were uh, held in such high esteem by the church in just a mere 200 years ago. These words were cherished. And now, what do we want to do with them? We want to run from them. We want to be ashamed of them. Well, maybe we don't, because we, we put sovereign in our name, right? But we wanted to run from them. The sovereignty of God. And what we've read in the passage already, you see it in verse 1, that it was God. That it was God who chose everyone who is a Christian. It was, it was God who predestined us unto salvation to all those who are being saved. It was God who acted. And if He didn't, there would be no salvation. It was God who had planned it. And if He had not planned it, then it wouldn't have been accomplished. It was God who provided for it. And it was God who put it into execution. It was God who so loved the world. It was God who sent His own Son to be born of a virgin under the law. It was God who foreordained the death of His Son, even death on a cross. It was God who then placed on His Son son the sins of the world. It was all of God, according to His purposes, And according to the counsel of his own will, verse 11, it was God. God is sovereign. It was God. 
And if we don't start here, at this perspective of God and the greatness of God and the sovereignty of God, and we don't start at this eternal perspective, and we want to get really close up to that, up to that stained glass and miss the whole, the whole picture, including salvation. If we, if we want to miss all of the greatness of the perspective of God and salvation here, you will be guilty, once again, of inevitably starting with yourself and then elevating yourself to form your own gods and trust in yourself and your own self-worth and your own self-sovereignty. We must start with God. It always starts with God. The Bible always starts with God. Always. Always starts with God. By the will of God. Verse 1 says, By the will of God. By the will of God. It was God who called Paul. It's God who called Paul by, by the will of God. Meaning of his sovereignty, right? God's, God's will, his purposes that he set forth in Christ. Verse 9. Verse 11, once again. In him we have obtained an inheritance, having been predestined according to the purpose of him, God, who works all things out according to the purpose of him, all things out that according to his counsel of his will. His will. His will. Not man's will, not Paul's will, not the will of the church, but God's will. Divine sovereignty is defined by uh, A.W. Pink said this, he says, means that God is God. In fact, as well as in name, he is on the throne of the universe directing all things, working all things after the counsel of his own will. Verse 11, once again, Ephesians 1. Meaning, nothing can hinder or thwart or change or impinge his will. God is sovereign. Nothing can change God's sovereign will. God's purpose and his plan for those who, have, who are saved and who are being saved are only by God's will. It is by God's own purpose and it's only by His plan and by the counsel of His will. Charles Spurgeon commented in, in regards to the sovereignty of God when he was uh, speaking of Matthew chapter 20, verse 15, which says this. It says, I am not allowed to do what I choose. Or he says, am I not allowed? I'm sorry. Am I not allowed to do with what I choose with what belongs to me? Or do you begrudge my generosity? And commenting as Charles Spurgeon says this in speaking of the sovereignty of God, he says, There is no attribute more comforting to his children than that of God's sovereignty. Under the most adverse circumstances, in the most severe trials, they believe that sovereignty has ordained their afflictions, that sovereignty overrules them, and that sovereignty will sanctify them. There is nothing for which the children ought more earnestly to contend than the doctrine of their master over all creation, the kingship of God over all the works of his own hands, the throne of God and his right to sit upon that throne. On the other hand, listen to this, on the other hand, there is no doctrine more hated by worldlings, no truth of which they have made such a football, meaning something that they can kick around, as the great stupendous, but yet most certain doctrine of the sovereignty of the infinite Jehovah. Men will allow God to be everywhere except on his throne. 
They will allow him to be in his workshop to fashion the worlds and make the stars. They will allow him to be with his almonry, meaning something that he gives the people, his, uh, these gifts, dispenses his alms and bestows his, bound, his bounties on people. They will allow him to sustain the earth and bear the pillars therefore, or the light of the lamps of heaven, or rule the waves of the ever-moving ocean. But when God ascends to his throne, his creatures gnash their teeth. And we proclaim an enthroned God and His right to do as He wills with His own. To dispose of His creatures as He thinks well without consulting them in the matter. Then it is, then it is that we are hissed. And we are hissed. And, that, and then it is that men turn to a deaf ear to us, to us For God on His throne is not the God they love, but it is the God upon the throne that we love to preach. It is God upon His throne whom we must trust. Lengthy quote, but helpful. Helpful. Very helpful. So God is sovereign over all things, including salvation. Completely over all things, not just the things that we want Him to be sovereign over, but all things. God is the one, as we see in chapter 3, verse 3, God is the one who is making the mysteries known. He is the one making the mysteries known by His own revelation and by His timing. What is the mystery? The mystery is that the Gentiles would now be, be, be fellow heirs would be fellow heirs. And it is the Lord's specific timing that this mystery was now being made known. This is an illustration of God's sovereignty. His sovereignty over time. And when these things will be made known, that God is over all things and He's over all of time and all the scope of time. It is in God's sovereign rule and by His timing that He has revealed these things according to the counsel of His own will. And this is a theme that flows through Ephesians. And as we read in the quote, brothers and sisters, there's, there's nothing more comforting or reassuring than God sovereign is sovereign. How else are we to walk in this life? How else are we to, to, to live this life? How else are we to endure suffering? How, else, how, uh, how are we to endure persecution? How are we to endure death? if God is not sovereign. Even the things by, that are still such a mystery that we do not understand. I was talking to my mom this morning on the phone. Two people on the west coast of Florida died last night in a tornado, just like that. Why would God do that? I don't know. But God is sovereign over life and of death. God is sovereign. And His sovereignty is everywhere. And it's all over scriptures. It's one of the most foundational doctrines. Doctrines, let's not run from it. Let us us embrace it completely, letting everything else go, believing that God is on His throne. And whether you let Him or not, He is on His throne. There's no letting God. He is sovereign Let's affirm, let's believe that this is what is taught explicitly and implicitly through the Scripture that God is sovereign over all. Let us not run from it, but let us be a people that embrace it. That embrace it. 
That is the sovereignty of God. So our first two points, the greatness of God, the sovereignty of God. Next one is the mystery of God. We'll go through this one a little bit quicker. The mystery of God. As we see in chapter 3 mainly, the mystery of God is just another theme that runs through Ephesians. Seven times in Ephesians does the word mystery used. It's used no more than four times in any other epistle, but seven times Paul uses it. Uh, chapter 1, verse 9, chapter 3, verse 3, and verse 4, and verse 6, and verse 9, chapter 5, verse 32, and speaking about the, the, the relationship between the husband and wife being the picture or the mystery of Christ loving the church and the mystery of the gospel. Chapter 6, verse 19, the mystery is of God's will. The mystery is of, of, of God's will and how God works. How many, of, how many of us approach the Bible and approach texts like Ephesians chapter 1? Maybe you read it this, this week and we're confused by quite a, quite a bit. How many of us approach the, the Bible, such as texts like these, such as chapter 1, and just say, I'm just confused and I, and I, and I don't understand? And that's, that's okay, because what I'm, what I'm telling you is there are several things about the sovereignty of God, brothers and sisters, that we are not going to understand that's why Paul himself calls them, they are mysteries. But just because they are mysteries does not mean we do not believe them all the same. We believe them. Why? Because God has said it to be so. God has said it to be so. They are mysteries. And even though that they may be mysteries, they are not mysteries in the mind of God. And the mind of God is inscrutable, unquestionable. We can't, we can't question the mind of God. I mean, let's, let me just point it like this. How great of a God would we really be worshiping? And would he be worth the songs that we sang this morning? A, a, a mighty fortress, come behold the wondrous mystery, right? I didn't do that on purpose, by the way. How, come behold the wondrous mystery. 10,000 reasons, right? These things that we say of God. How great would it be of God, and, and even would he be worthy of such worship, if you, being the created, understood everything about God? Would he really be God? if you could fully grasp and known and understood everything there is to know about God? No. How weak would he be? God is mysterious. And that is what we see throughout Ephesians. You cannot counsel God. The end of, of, of such things, of trying to counsel God and tell God what, what to do and how to do it and when to do it, is such folly. He is infinite and He's eternal and we are so finite and temporal. If you start to, to think that you can understand this mystery in its fullest and fully comprehend God, then you are kidding yourself and you're finding an idol in yourself above God instead of finding your identity in God. We should delight in these mysteries. And yet what the mysteries of God does for so many and should do for all of us is that it should, it should call us and bring us and keep us marveled for more and more. 
I, I never thought about this, but what is it? It's like verse 4 or verse 5 of Amazing Grace. Uh, when we've been there 10,000 years or something like that, um, and what's the rest of it? Rise, shining sun. Um, I never really thought about it like this, but um, I heard this said one time that that, 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 that that verse used to just terrify someone. And when we were in heaven for 10,000 years, and that's all we're doing, he's like, that would be just the most boring thing ever. And the reason why he said that is this. He, said, he says, because I did not understand and marvel at the mysteries of God. That even after the 10,000 years and the bright shining sun and whatever else the verse goes, right? That even after those things, we will still not even come close to understanding the mysteries of God and who God is. You can get to know somebody for quite a long, after quite a long time. But the more and more that you dig into the Lord, the more and more you will realize that it goes deeper and deeper and deeper. And the more you dig, the more you want more. The mysteries of God. Number four is the grace of God. Number four is the grace of God. This is such a theme in Ephesians. Twelve times as Ephesians speak of the grace of God. Um, for example, verse, verse 7 of chapter 1 says, In him we have redemption through his blood, the forgiveness of our trespasses, according to the riches of his grace. His grace. We, the, the common definition of the grace of God is, is that it's defined as the free, unmerited favor of God toward the elect. I like the, the fuller definition that is uh, given by A.W. Pink and Attributes of God. Uh, good read, by the way. Y'all should pick it up. Yeah, it's free on the internet and everything. Um, he defined it such. He says, Divine grace is the sovereign and saving favor of God exercised in the bestowment of his blessings upon those who have no merit in them and for which no compensation is demanded from them. Nay, more, it is the favor of God shown to those who not only have no positive deserts of their own, but who are thoroughly ill-deserving and hell-deserving. It is completely unmerited and unsought and altogether unattracted by anything in, in or for or from or by the objects upon which it is bestowed. Grace can neither be, can, can neither be bought or earned nor won by the creature. If it could be, it would cease to be grace. When a thing is said to be of grace we mean that the recipient has no claim upon it, that it was in no wise due him. It comes to him as pure charity, and at first, unasked and undesired. Unasked and undesired. The grace of God is highlighted in Ephesians. How often do we come to God, not as the creature who is in need of such charity. Who is in need, but we come to one who already has and just wants more. God's grace is for those who are in need. That's why Jesus' illustration, this parable of the, of the, uh, uh, the tax collector who was on the street, who was repenting of his sin publicly cried out to God, God, I am in need of you. 
And then you have the, you have the Pharisee who stared at him and says, God, I'm glad I'm not like that guy. And the reason why Jesus has given, that, given us such an illustration is because the heart of man comes as the Pharisee. We come, we, we come to God as ones who are already good. As one who don't, doesn't really need the doctor, as Jesus said. But all of man, even the most righteous among us, those who seem the most holy, all come to God as such needy creatures. Fallen in their nature. In need of God's grace. There is not one who is not in need of God's grace. And this is the way that God has visited us. This is the way that God has provided for us. is by His grace and by His grace alone. And the abundance of His grace toward us. If we are not looking forward or looking to the grace of God and the riches of, of, of God's grace, then what are we looking for? We're looking in ourselves. You know, we'll, we'll pay to go to museums. We will, we'll pay to go visit places. And we'll, we'll pay to go see and enjoy things of great wealth and great splendor and riches of this world. But oh, how this epistle, as we read earlier in verse 7 there, how this epistle puts on display the superabundance and the riches of grace of God. Do you see it? If you are in Christ, do you see your abundant wealth in the God's grace? In God's grace that He has lavished upon you? When you say you are in Christ, this is what you are dependent upon solely is God's grace. Do you identify yourself as one who has been saved solely upon God's grace? And it is God's grace that you are alone boasting in. The grace of God. The grace of God. Ah, what to marvel in but the grace of God. Number five, the Son of God. Number five, the Son of God. We, we're, we always, we are always seeing in the church and in the epistles, we're always seeing in the epistles or in the scripture that Christ, that Christ is the head. We're always seeing that. And yet we, we live in a time in a, in, in a world that, that people who would call themselves Christians and even churches that would call themselves churches will attempt to present a form of Christianity without Christ. People are always wanting to create and talk about Christianity without speaking of Jesus. They'll, they'll speak of forgiveness and they'll speak of nothing of Christ. They'll speak of the love of God or the pity of God and they will mention nothing of the love of God on display through the Son of God and through Jesus Christ. But not so with the Scripture. Not so with the Apostle Paul here. This is an essential point. An essential point we must not miss because there is no gospel and there is no salvation apart from Jesus Christ. All of God's purposes and promises are fulfilled and done through Christ. Everything God has done and produced and, and purposed for salvation in His people 
the building of his church and, uh, and is and done through Jesus Christ has all been done through him and in him and by him. From the beginning and to the end are all things done in Jesus Christ. From creation to the very, very end of the world. All through Christ. So there's no message, as, 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 as ridiculous as this may sound, there's, there's no message outside of Christ. There's no Christian message outside of Christ. There's no hope outside of Christ. We are called and we are chosen in Christ. We are reconciled and redeemed by the blood of Christ. So how are we forgiven? And that's something we all want. We all want to be forgiven. Is it because I confessed of my sin, I repented, and I pleaded with God with all the best intentions of my heart? No. We are forgiven through Christ. Our repentance and confession of of sin and, and, and need of the gospel is only in response to what God has done in Christ. Your repentance and your pleading with God and your confession to God of your sin is only in response to what Christ has done. And he always acts first. God does not, and he cannot save man through their own confession and through their own sorrow. No one has ever been saved like that. There is only one way which any of us can be saved, and that is because God sent his Son to be the atoning sacrifice sacrifice and the redemption of our sins. Only through Jesus Christ. He is the head of the church. Now and completely for all eternity. He is supreme in all things. He is the sovereign son of God. Christ is absolutely essential in this epistle. And he runs throughout. Because that is where our identity lies, is in Christ. He is the very cornerstone of that identity. Christ. Number six, last one. The purposes of God. The purposes of God. Look at verse 10 in chapter 1. He says, as a, as a plan for the fullness of time to unite all things in Him. In Him, Jesus, right? Jesus Christ. Things in heaven and things on earth. The purposes of God are seen and expressed through Jesus Christ. Only through Him. He sent His Son, and it was necessary because of sin. That's what chapter 2 is going to unpack for us. The prince and the power of the air and the sons of disobedience, right? God's plan is absolutely necessary in the purposes of fulfilling all these things through His Son because of the fall of man. Because of the fall. Sin is nothing unique to just our era or to the modern era. Men and women are, have always been separated. Since, since Genesis chapter 3, we've been separated. Whereas factions of groups against one another, there's always been pain, there's always been evil intent toward one another. It is man setting themselves up as God. And yet, as we saw in, in chapter 3, that in the, in the, the, by the mystery of God, he sent his son by the purposes of God to be fulfilled in Christ that we may be saved. The whole, the whole point of the Old Testament is, is setting up this plan of redemption. 
setting up this plan of, of redemption by, by pointing to Israel and, and unknown, unworthy people and pointing them up and saying, look how I share my grace and put my grace and blessing upon them. And he gives the law. He gives the law to show for our, the greatness of God but also our need for grace. And in Christ, in the fullness of time, came. Came for the redemption and the forgiveness of, of, of our sins, of the Jews and also for the Gentiles. God's purposes are now fulfilled in Christ. Every one of his promises are made and fulfilled in Christ. And it is now in Christ that the purposes of God are being fulfilled and made through his church, through us. The church is the display of God's grace of Christ to the world and to his bride. It's the point of chapter 5, verses 22 through 33. The point of that is to show God's purposes of his grace to the world through his church. The grace that has been given to us in Christ. So it's such a wonderful thing to see that in the purposes of God, the uniting of us together. It's such, a, it's such a wonderful thing to be a part of the church. And yet, I don't have to give too much of an example, how little, how little it is held in regard. That's nothing. It's, it's treated as such trivial. Here today, gone tomorrow. If there's nothing else better I'll do to do, then I'll go. If I can get up in the morning, I'll go. And I'm not trying to heat burdens or guilt upon you, but, but that's the triviality that church is, is made to. The culture by which we exist, right? In which we've existed, where, where membership is treated as meaningless in so many ways. Meaningless in so many ways. This is why being a member of the church, the display of God's grace to the world through Christ is to be taken so seriously. And we should hold in such regard the privilege and responsibility of each one of us being a member of Christ's church. It's so important. It is so important that when we get to chapter 4, and I think even some of chapter 3, when we get into chapter 4, chapter 3, and chapter 5, you'll see the particulars, right, of how you are to live in community and relationship to one another because of how important it is to live in this beautiful identity, this beautiful community of the church. So the greatest need, that's, that's our six points there, the greatest need of all of us is to know these truths. We need to, we need to look again always at the sovereignty of, of God and put aside this, this morbid infatuation with ourselves. If we would only see ourselves as we are depicted in this epistle, as Paul depicts the neediness of man. As the, as, and not just man. That, that sounds too general. As the Holy Spirit depicts your neediness, put your name in there. If we only would see that, if we would only see that, what difference it would make in your life every day. Every day. That's why Paul prayed in Ephesians 3, and you can follow with me if you want, but I'm going to read it, and this is where we're going to close. Ephesians 3, start in verse 14. This is why Paul prayed this. Because he wants you, that's given by the Holy Spirit, he wants us so much 
to see these things in regards of who God is. The greatness of God, the sovereignty of God, the mystery of God, the grace of God, the Son of God, and the purposes of God. Starting in verse 14. For this reason I bow my knees before the Father. This is Paul's prayer. From whom every family in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, listen to what he says, according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with the power through his spirit in your inner being, so that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have strength to comprehend with all the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses knowledge, that you may be filled with all the fullness of God. Verse 20. I love this verse. Now to him who is able. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than what we ask or what we think according to the power that is at work within us. To him be glory in the church and in Christ Jesus throughout all generations forever and ever. Amen. Oh, if we could grasp the length and the breadth and the height of such, a, of such glory that God has seen here. If we could grasp such things. See that, that great picture of that stained glass. So that when we take a step closer every week, we remember what's, what God has done. And what he is doing. What he's accomplishing through us. And I like what he says there as well. Throughout all generations, forever and ever. Our generation. He's working. He's moving. He's uniting. By his grace. Let's pray together. Father, thank you for, the, for your word and the power of your word to speak to us. And I pray now that as we respond together that you are exalted and glorified by the humility, by the humility in which we have encountered your word. Your greatness, your sovereignty, your, your mystery, your, your grace, your son, your purposes, all these things that you are accomplishing and showing throughout this, throughout this book, God, I pray that may we marvel in you for the way that we find identity, the way that we identify with Christ is by denying ourselves and marveling in the Lord, in you. So help us now, God, in all the things that we say and how our hearts respond. May they be glorifying to you. Amen.